Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on Tuesday, August 11th. So, uh, first question right out of the box, Drew. Did we catch Amphibia this past Saturday? Yes. Uh, did you watch it? I did. I did. And it, I was kind of intrigued that it was a twofer. I mean, I, I tuned in for Wax Museum because, again, you and I both loved Gravity Falls so much. And, you know, it was, was nice to see Grunkle, Stan, and Seuss in frog form <laughs> again. <laughs> I'll take them any way I can get them, Jim. Yeah, good or no, absolutely, absolutely. But the surprise was actually the episode that came before it, Swamp and Sensibility. Did you know about this, well, Kermit uh, Crumpet cameo? Yes, I did. They had, okay. Kermit had hosted the uh, Amphibia D23 panel mm-hmm. at the last D23. I don't That's know if you right. remember that That's or we're right. in the room. <laughs> so, so I think that this was in the works for a little while, and I thought it was just so funny. Mm-hmm. That was a great cameo, right? He was like it the announcer a, at the— It was yeah. a great cameo, and no disrespect to Matt Vogel, who took over doing the voice of Kermit after Steve Whitmire was basically forced out back in July of 2017. Matt's doing his best. But did you ever see the, the family guy where they did the gag about wrong-sounding Muppets? No. <laughs> I want to say it's Fozzie and the Swedish chef walking along the street, but it's they're very New Yorkers. And it's just sort of like, uh, wrong-sounding Muppets. And I know Matt's going to get there eventually, but it was just, uh, he, he get the sound right. I'm old, so I have Jim Henson's version of Curry in my head. I have Steve Whitmire's version of Curry in my head, and so... I'm doing the yardstick of those two people who did the character for decades, and Matt's only been doing it for three years. So, but I liked it, which brings me to Muppets Now dropped since we last recorded a show. And yes, and I know you really, really like this show. I, I read the piece you wrote for Collider about it. I, I, I gotta say, I'm, I'm not there yet. Okay. But even I, after you saw Pepe's game show, don't get me wrong. I, I love me some Pepe. That, that's Bill Beretta. You know, they always love that character. And there's great individual elements, but I'm an old fart. I remember the first season of the syndicated Muppet Show back when it debuted in September of '76, and even that wasn't all that hot. It took a year or so to really hit its stride and. You know, right. have, have Piggy step out of the ensemble and become, you know, one of the lead characters and figure out who Gonzo was. So with the Muppets, I, I think you always have to, well, have you ever heard the, the old cliche that children are like pancakes? You should be allowed to throw the first one away. <laughs> Jim, I was the first one. Well, you Can know, you I'm just saying, okay, you know, oh it, my as God. a number two child. Well, just if you learn as you go, <laughs> you know, so that's the thing. I think with the first season of any Muppet show that they're finding their feet and in fact that's the thing of when you watch like Muppets Tonight or for that matter the Muppet show on ABC back in 2015 Mm -hmm. I I know I'm very 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 much in the minority here but I like that show and I liked it too and I thought it, it had places to go in season two but ABC pulled the plug in in March of 2016 and that's all we got and thing that makes me crazy is when they, they were talking, Muppet Studios was talking about making that show, they wanted to put it on Netflix. 
because they knew they'd right. get at least two seasons. And the executives at ABC just threw a fit, get it to the effect of, what do you mean you're sending it to Netflix? You know, we're ABC. You should give us the Muppets and we'll we'll support the show. We'll get by it 100%. And they pulled it before the end of, of November, right? Yeah, they retooled it, put it back on, didn't take. <sighs> so, you so, know. Anyway. Whatever. Yeah. But here's the thing that, that I really found intriguing about that. Remember, that show was built around the premise. It's a workplace comedy like The Office. It takes you backstage at Up Late with Miss Piggy. And, right. And yet we have now this The Patrick Star show that just got announced coming from, from Nickelodeon, where he's, you know, Patrick is now the host of his own late night show. And it's like, come on, there's another idea out there, right? We can't right. keep doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, I love the character Patrick Starr. I love what Bill Farkenbarger has been doing with the character since 1999. But there's kind of a concern here that this is the second spinoff now, right? We, we had, what, yeah. uh, Camp Coral, and now this. And yeah. Uh, Who knows what will actually be on the air first, because Camp Crow was supposed to be out in June and is now coming to CBS All Access mm -hmm. in 2021. So, yeah. yeah. Have you been reading the same things that I've been reading, that, that uh, Stephen Hildenberger, the, the creator of SpongeBob, wasn't necessarily a fan of spinoffs? So. Yeah, he adamantly fought against it, but it's just amazing that he dies and then we've got two in yeah. the course of a year. Yeah, I mean. It's, well, uh, in fact, it gets a little uncomfortable because Stephen died in November 2019. Uh, excuse me, 2018, and then in February of 2019 is when the word, you know, news first broke that the ver the first spinoff was in the works. And, and I know from friends who actually work with Steven, I mean, he was very, very protective of the characters. Did you ever see the SpongeBob uh, 4D attraction? It's really, really rough, you know, from the early no. days of CG. You, you, can, you can go online and, and watch it now. It's basically... Story is, you know, surprise plankton is stealing the, you know, the recipe for the Krabby Patty. And, but it's really, really bad early animation. And so I had a friend who was, uh, Zane Yench, who was working on the very next generation of CG. And he really had to sell Steven on the idea that these characters can look good in CG. And they did, uh, starting in 2013, there was a new ride film out there called The Great Jelly Rescue. And in fact, Steven liked it so much, that was why he allowed the characters to be done in CG for the, the very next um, theatrical release, that SpongeBob film. Where was this ride? Was, it at, was this the one at the Nickelodeon Hotel? Well, no. The weird part is you could go to the Nickelodeon Hotel and see the very first one from 2007. In fact, I remember going in there and it's like... This is the one? You have that wonderful new film that, and, and by the way, <laughs> both of these are viewable on YouTube, and I, I strongly suggest folks go check them out. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's one of these things where it's a, co a giant corporation, and the stats about SpongeBob, it was the highest rated series to air on Nickelodeon. It's Viacom CBS's most distributed property. And as of late 2017, the franchise had generated $300 billion in merch. So I get it. I, I, I get he, he's on my box of mini wheats right now, Jim. 
He's, you know. Well, it, but he's there because wasn't Camp Coral supposed to be? Or, I think it was actually for the movie. For the movie. Uh, that's yeah, right. That's yeah. right. Uh, and you could even you could even send in for your movie ticket. So, uh, you know. Jeez. Which <laughs> brings us to the other news of this week in regard to revivals and that sort of thing. And and you and I, get, again, went back and forth about uh, this, the, the, the Ren and Stimpy revival that's going to be yeah. showing up on Comedy Central because Drew doesn't want to give any, you know, put John Crickfalusi in the spotlight. And, and given what's been revealed about Mr. Crickfalusi, I get that. I totally get that. But the weird part of it is, is that I remember when Ren and Stimpy first came on the air. In fact, I, I remember seeing the first Ren and the pilot of the show uh, back in 1990 when they, they showed Big House Blues animation festivals. Nickelodeon hadn't officially greenlit the show at that point, but show comes on the air at ni- in 91, becomes this monstrous hit. It's kind of Beanie and Cecil on acid. Uh, the Little Mermaid had only happened two years before, and it's the same year that Beauty and the Beast is happening, and suddenly animation is something that adults can talk about, because here's this hit series on Nickelodeon, and here's Beauty and the Beast being nominated for Best Picture, but then Ren and Stimpy goes off the rails. I mean, John K. can't deliver the shows on time, so Nickelodeon winds up firing him. They bring Bob Camp in, uh, set up a whole new production company, Game Studios, and everyone immediately notices that shows are not the same because John brought this crazed feeling and, and style to the show. So they go off the air in 95, uh, December of 95. And then eight years later, they attempt to bring the show back on Spike Television, only John's back in charge. It was the, the Ren and Stimpy adult cartoon party. And... I think they only made six of those and only three of them aired and they were terrible. I never saw it. As somebody who loved the first show, it's long, it's long, it's better than bad, it's good. It was so excited that John Crickfalusi was coming back to animation and he was going to take over Ren and Stimpy again. And it was just, it was so wrong. It was, they buried the needle so far in trying to do an adult show that a lot of the charm of the characters just bled out of it and it just, it, it kind of blew up. So now... To have them just last week announce that now we've got a, another version of the show being another reboot uh, being done for Comedy Central. I worry that this is adult cartoon party all over again. That You and I have both taken a look at the, the new Looney Tunes shows for HBO Max, and those seem to work. Yes. It yeah. is possible to bring a character back. Have you ever read a press release that makes such a strong point of the guy who created the show has absolutely nothing to do with it? We're not giving him any money. That you know, we're 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 locking him out of the building. I mean, I I've right. never read a press like this release like this before. And I know it's crazy. Yeah, but well, uh, folks, if you're not familiar at all, really, with, with Ren and Stimpy, uh, the other reason we bring this up is starting. On the 14th of this month, Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, the Ren and Stimpy story, a documentary about John Kay and you know, the, the production of the show, debuts video on demand. And again, I got to warn you, it's going to feature some fairly adult content because John kind of went off the rails. I don't think necessarily adult content is wrong. You know, I mean, 
Drew, you were the one who suggested this topic, that what Rebecca Sugar had to say about how Cartoon Network was in regard to uh, Steven Universe. There's a great interview with her and uh, the woman that created She-Ra, which mm-hmm. is also very wonderful. Mm-hmm. And they talk about just, you know, having to... I think, I think She-Ra was more open about its kind of mm-hmm. same-sex themes, but that Cartoon Network told Rebecca Sugar not to even mention them. And then at some point, she just sort of started ignoring what, what they were saying and, mm-hmm. and would talk about it pretty openly. But the reason I bring it up is because I feel like that there is so much great representation. And I, I don't know if you watched this week weekend's Owl House as mm-hmm. well. Did you get a chance to watch I that? I saw that that wonderful dance uh, battle thing. That, yes, that was, yes. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But again, some very overt mm-hmm. gay themes uh, mm-hmm. and two girls going to prom together, which you would never see on Disney mm-hmm. ever. I mean, even on something like High School Musical, the musical, the series, it's sort of pretty coy the mm-hmm. way that they deal with it. But, you know, you brought up, too, in, in, in pre-gaming that, you know, Harley Quinn has a lot of yeah. gay themes and her, her relationship with Poison Ivy is really it's, it's the heart of the whole show. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um yeah. But we still haven't heard word on season three yet, which I'm a little nervous about, especially after all these DC layoffs this week. But I mean, I'm not going to say I'm surprised given what's been going on in the DC world for a while that it doesn't feel like there's anybody at the wheel or that those IPs have the focus that perhaps they should. But uh, right. but yeah, I, you know, if, if, if we don't get a third season of Harlequin, you know, just... <laughs> Um, we riot. <laughs> uh, by the way, now, uh, Alex Hirsch, who, of course, does voice work for uh, Owl House these days, he also talked, I guess, in relation to the episode that just dropped on Owl House about his own dealings with the network, right? Or, or Yeah, he said that he was forbidden to include any kind of gay themes or characters in his work, although he did because the two cops in Gravity Falls are gay, but I'm sure he would have loved to have an actual main character or, you know, larger supporting character go through those mm-hmm. those things. But he's obviously, he's dating uh, Dana Terrace, who created mm-hmm. Owl House. Like you said, he's on the show. He's he's credited as a creative consultant, too. So I'm sure he has a little bit more influence there. But, you know, it was just lovely to see sort of everybody rallying around this great moment in Disney animation. And it would be great to see it in a real movie, too, Jim. Imagine that. <laughs> but I guess we're going to have to wait for that. <laughs> wait another 10 years. Uh, well, we're going to continue the adult theme nature of the show when we get to the, the second half of the show here. We're going to move to the topic of controlled substances. Oh, good. And Disney animated features, oddly enough. But first, quick break. Before we get to the adult stuff, you wanted to talk about the Troll Hunters movie that we've got coming from Guillermo, right? Or- yes. Well, I mean, we, we had been tipped off to this, I think, maybe a year or so ago. But it was finally announced that there's going to be Troll Hunters movie that is coming out in 2021 Mm -hmm. and it'll wrap everything up all the characters will will be there did you watch wizards jim i am in the process and having done the first two series how exactly is wizards going to do this i mean there are so many characters there's so many storylines set in different time periods i love to see guillermo with it with a challenge but it's like that's a lot of planes to land, so to speak, you know? Well, 
your your assignment will be to finish it, Jim, and we'll talk about it next week, maybe. Okay. See how they did. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Anyway, folks, we were talking about controlled substances, and and <laughs> the reason I brought up that topic, especially in relationship to Disney animated features, because seriously, this is absolutely true, folks. The only reason Fantasia ever turned a profit has to do with pot. Fantasia comes out in November of, of 1940, but it's the roadshow version. You know, remember, Walt, you know, invented the whole fantasy hound thing. And so in order to get that full stereo feeling, uh, you know, you had to, to buy the, the what, $100,000 worth of speakers set up and that sort of thing. And it was a reserve seat ticket. And there were only 14 theaters in the country that could present the show the way that Walt wanted but this is pre-war, and, and in spite of the fact that Fantasia runs, has a, an impressive run in a lot of different directions. It ran for 39 weeks at the Carthay Circle Theater in L.A. It was 49 weeks at the, the Broadway Theater in, in New York City. Uh, but that wasn't enough to cover the, the film's production costs. And the studio wound up taking over a million dollar write-down on Walt's concert feature. It's not till 14 months later that Fantasia finally goes into general release, but it goes into general release in January of 1942, which is literally one month after America enters World War II. So, uh, you know, it's a tough time for this sort of movie to be out in theaters. And RKO really puts sort of a hammerlock on Walton. It's like, look, this thing is two hours and six minutes long. It has an intermission exhibitors just aren't going to show it in this way and and walt himself it's like i can't do it i can't cut it so he hands it over to two of his subordinates and they cut 26 minutes out of the movie uh, they basically cut out all of the narration the the, the deems taylor stuff and they send that out in the theaters and it does no business it's just the wrong film at the wrong time and so RKO now pulls the film from release, cuts another 20 minutes out of the movie, Drew. They take the whole Tenkata and Fuse scene out of the movie, and they send it back into theaters as the bottom half of a double feature. They paired it with a, a Western called, what, The Valley of the Sun, which stars Lucille Ball. But anyway... Disaster. Just doesn't recover any of its money. Film goes back out into theaters in September 46. Film now, they've restored a lot of the stuff. It's now 115 minutes rather than 126 minutes. But still, it doesn't do the business that Disney wants. February of 1956, Disney takes the footage. And because of the, the cinemascope craze of the period, they do what they call a super scope version where they crop it and a lot of people complained loudly about the fact that the way they'd crop the film they'd lose the bottom of the, the shot the, the top of the shot I mean, it was huge but you know they lost a lot of picture february of 1963 released to theaters yet again this time it's in full stereo it's in super scope and it's only on this release drew that fantasia finally breaks even but again it, it hadn't turned to profit well, Michael Eisner tells the story that he was called and told that it made a profit when it was on video. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I only know this because I just read his memoir, Jim, yeah. as you know. Uh, yeah. The bat phone rang and he picked it up and I said, you know what? It's finally in the clear after they okay. sold it. For well, I'm sure because Michael Eisner said it, it's true. <laughs> By the way, we, we, we talked about this previously on the show, but I, I want to stress this is something folks really should be checking out. Brad Bird 
is hosting the Essentials on Turner Classic uh, every Saturday night. And it's worth it alone to catch the, the first. He talks at the beginning, you know, uh, with Ben Mankiewicz uh, for about, you know, 10 minutes about the movie. And then there's sort of a five-minute wrap-up. But he has all of these amazing stories. And just last month, they played Stanley Kubrick's 2001. And Brad told this great story about how 2001 gets released to theaters in April of 1968. And initially, it's just not doing the business. And so MGM is, eh, okay, I guess we better pull it. And as they go to pull it, a couple of exhibitors go, no, wait, wait, hang on. You might be doing this prematurely. We're seeing something interesting. Um, You know, the adult film people are, you know, ticket buyers aren't showing up, but the college kids are. And, you know, you know, we saw more of them this weekend than we saw the weekend before. And let's see where this goes. And so what ends up happening is, sure enough, the college kids have discovered 2001. But they're, they're not discovering it necessarily for the reason that Stanley made the movie. What's happening is that before they're going into the theater, they're taking controlled substances. Or in some cases, they're actually smoking in the theater. So they're in the right headspace for that last half hour of 2001, the the Stargate sequence where, again, I can't describe it. You got to see it. But it's that it's that scene and the fact that the head culture embraced the movie that ultimately turned 2001 into a financial success and the kind of beloved cult film that it is today. And everybody in Hollywood notices this, you know, that, wow, that's that's making money off of an audience that hasn't necessarily turned out before. And it ran for weeks. I mean, 2001 ran for more than a year in some theaters. In, for example, in, in L.A., it played for 103 weeks at the Cinerama Dome in L.A. But movies like this don't come along every day. And so every studio in Hollywood's kind of like, all right, how do we get us one of those? And it turns out, in Disney's case, they really didn't have to look all that far, that there was a studio employee who worked in the educational films department. And through the educational films department, high schools, colleges, and the like could rent theatrically released movies and show them for, quote-unquote, educational purposes. This Disney employee noticed that some schools, through their film studies department, were showing Fantasia not just like once a year, but like two and three times a year. And it's like, well, what's that about? So they send a representative. The very next time that Yale decides to show Fantasia, they send a representative to the school. And this person reports back to Disney. It's like, okay. So it was a full auditorium on a Saturday night. It was students. It was faculty. And the thing is, everyone in the room basically had a joint or was smoking pot out of a pipe. And, you know, it's just standing at the back of the hall counting heads. I got a contact high. But it's one of these things where you'd think that, oh, my God, this is Disney. This is family-friendly Disney, and they will not tolerate this. And it's like, well, no, this is 1969 Disney, uh, which is building Walt Disney World in Florida, which was originally budgeted to cost $100 million and now looks like it's going to cost three times that, maybe four times that. And so it's like, hey, this is our 2001. Let's go. And so first thing Disney does is starting in December of 1969 – they announce, oh, we're pulling Fantasia from our educational film catalog. But then in February of 1970, they announced that Fantasia is going out, is going to be re-released. But 
it's a different sort of re-release, Drew. What they, they do is it's only going into 70 towns and cities around the United States. These are mostly college towns. And Disney deliberately picks smaller theaters. We're talking, for example, like the 631-seat Fine Arts Theater in L.A. or the 581-seat Severance Theater in Cleveland. But with the understanding that what they're going to do is create the phenomenon that was happening on college campuses, but in paying theaters. And by July of 1970... Fantasia had already sold $2 million worth of tickets, which, again, was the first, you know, not to to say that Michael Eisner got it wrong, but (laughs) that was the thing. Supposedly, this was the moment that Fantasia finally turned a profit, this money. And, in fact, the funny thing is you can go right now, if you Google 1970 Fantasia release poster, I mean, Disney isn't even pretending this is literally like the blacklight poster that any stoner would have in their high school bedroom. It's that sort of imagery. It's that set of colors. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's it is. really great. It wasn't like Disney was hiding this. In fact, it, the, the trades actually began to talk about it. That the Variety ran a story on November 13th, 1970 with this headline, Disney's Fantasia going to pot. How the studio is selling this reissue it was all targeted marketing at this specific demographic. And speaking of marketing, to promote the film, they actually sent a couple of the nine old men out to college campuses during this run to talk about Fantasia. And Ollie Johnson talked about how, you know, whenever he sat down with a representative of these college papers, they'd always go, what were you on when you were making this animated movie? And Ward Kimball, who always delighted in being a smartass, uh, had the best response to this question. When, when he was asked if they used drugs while working on Fantasia, Ward would always say, absolutely. Uh, my two favorites were X-Lax and Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> Fantasia stays in re- re-release, playing in these smart art, art, art house theaters around college campuses for the next year or two, eventually grossing $5 million in ticket sales and all in, in all of these small theaters. And this was the first time that Disney took a hard look at Fantasia and said, you know, for this group, Maybe it's time to go into the pastoral symphony and pull those scenes with Sunflower, the Centaurette. Oh, it was that early. That's when they cut those scenes. Cause I, yeah, because I don't think I've ever seen it with those scenes. Not that I'm missing anything, no, but I'm no. just saying that, that when I, I, I was born in 83, so, you know, I probably saw it during the, the first VHS release and it was not. It was not there then, no, for sure. No, no, no. But again, that this is why YouTube is our friend. Anyway, uh, we jump ahead to April of 77. Disney finally puts Fantasia back into theaters, but but not the cute little art houses, but the, the wide release theaters. And it's only out in theaters for a few weeks before Fantasia is basically pushed off of screens all over the country because what arrives in theaters but the original Star Wars, A New Hope. But the time they, they brought it back into theaters and it doesn't have to play just to pot smokers. It's like, no, I'm sorry. You know, too, too late. We want to go watch this Star Wars movie. So that's how Fantasia finally turned a profit by, by going to pot. Now to, to pivot to other. Well, I, have a, I actually have a story for you, Joe. Sure. Is that at the Inside Out press day, there was a, you know, a press conference and they asked all the, the voice, voice cast mm-hmm. what their favorite Disney movie is. And Louis Black... Mm-hmm said Fantasia because he saw it on LSD 
when he was in college, and that blew his mind, and it was so funny watching the whole room. As you know, these these things are full of Disney representatives, and at the time, I was working for the company, too, and you could just feel the room kind of, like, like kind of contract oh. as he was saying this in front of, you know, hundreds of journalists. Oh, what I, um, what I love about moments like that is you can literally, from watching... The posture <laughs> of, yes. of the publisher's oh, yeah. chair. Just, you know, just literally everyone just tightens up like, oh, okay. Yeah. And they're clutching their, their you know, folders, their binders oh, much tighter at yeah. the moment. Yeah. God. Oh, that, yeah. that's great. That's Isn't great. that funny? No, no, that's a great story. That's a, But again, I, I love that Lewis was of that. And it, of course, it makes perfect sense that Lewis would be Oh, yeah. I'm sure he was in it. one of these, yeah, one of these college towns and saw it during this, this rollout. So, yeah, pretty funny. And so, okay. Okay, talk to me about uh, Light Diffuse. What do we, what do we got going on over there this week? We, we're still we're part two of our uh, Kevin Yeager conversation. As I said, he is a makeup and a kind of like creature master. He's done all these amazing creatures, as you know. And then I think this week we get into what happened with Sleepy Hollow because it was a story he conceived. Mm-hmm. And then was kicked out of the director's chair. No. <laughs> and you get all these great stories about why that happened, what Francis Ford Coppola's involvement was in this whole Michigas, and it's pretty great. And if it's not this week, it's next week because we're doing a three three parter. But okay, yeah, we've got a lot of great great stuff coming up. Okay, still well, going strong. Yeah. This brings up your social media presence because again, it was just this week that you had that image of Kevin holding up the mask of, I want to say it was Tom Cruise. and Yes, it was from part two. Oh, yeah. So, was... yeah, isn't that funny? Because <laughs> he he, that was him on the Zoom call. We were like, oh, my God. Just pulls this that is, severed head. Yeah. That was disturbing. I just. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, yes. I, but yes. again, it, 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 it's, it's not always disturbing to follow Drew's Twitter feed. It, it, it's actually delightful commentary <laughs> and insight. But, but every so often there's an image that will haunt your dreams. So Yes. Usually it's. I'm just sharing pictures of 80s malls but that one yeah well yes. that could be pretty horrifying unto itself you know, that's true that's, that's true okay uh let's see on our side of the fence uh we got disney dish with, with lentesto who by the way w- what did you think of the ambient sound thing that he just did i haven't listened to it yet is this on the um, Bandcamp or on the regular? I want to say it's it's Bandcamp. Okay, I haven't listened yet, but I I did listen to his um, Carousel of Progress forensic investigation, which I really <laughs> yes CSI COP really yes you know yes I, yes I, I I have to admit I just that that was that was amazing drilling down there, but uh, but yeah, yeah. That, that's going to see if we can get him to do the other acts of the show. But uh, and speaking of other acts, we've got. Marvelous Disney, the podcast that's actually uh, I do with Aaron Adams. Uh, likewise, we have Looking Lucasfilm with your good close personal friend Dan Z. We got Universal Trent with Dustin Fuse. I need to record a new one of those. I also need to do a new installment of I Want That with Shelley Valladolid. If you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only Light the Fuse, but also Fine Tuning here. If you get over to Bandcamp and subscribe, uh, that would be helpful. Now, when people are looking for you over on uh, Twitter, Drew, it's it, again, it's Drew Taylor, Drew, but it's yeah, a different tailored like yeah, tailored like the tailored suit. Mm-hmm. And you can find me on Collider every day because now, after Jim shamed me for having a light week, you know, I've just got to be cranking out the content. 
which I think I've been doing. And and we'll talk about, uh, I'm sure you didn't get a chance to watch my Kirk and Gary interview. Not yet. yet. It just but, arrived okay. this afternoon, but I'm looking forward yeah. to that. And I'm really looking forward to this Black Cauldron story you've got in the works. Yes. It sounds amazing. Yeah, so hopefully, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll get through that stuff too next week. So that'll be fun. But okay. uh, yeah, if you want Disney stuff, it's kind of my beat, so yeah, good, good just stuff. Um, good, good stuff. check out that, check it out there, yeah. Okay, and Nancy wants me to remind you that for Jim Hill Media, social media, uh, for Twitter and Instagram, we are just plain old Jim Hill Media, and over at Facebook, it's Jim Hill Media News. So we'll be back with a new show next week. So take care, and good night.